Thank you for tuning into this sermon from New Life Student Ministries. Our goal is to inspire, equip, and support our students and families with biblically rich and God-centered teaching. These messages are meant to be supplemental and not substitutional for our weekly gathering. We hope this sermon is a blessing to you and your spiritual walk. How are we doing tonight? We feel good? How many of you came last week for the recording? Give by show of hands, show of shouts. It was a good time. I have to tell you, I, I, I was, it was a great recording, no doubt. But I was standing there and I was like, man, I wish we had youth group tonight. <laughs> I wish we had youth group tonight. But I will say this, my heart was so proud when Pastor Brady got up at the end and he goes, I want to acknowledge a couple different groups that yeah, I just really want to thank. And he said, I want to, I want to thank the students of New Life Church because you guys turned up. So give yourselves a hand. I was proud. I was like, yeah, no big deal. I get to be with them every Wednesday. If you have your Bibles, Acts chapter 9 is where we're going to be tonight. Um, if you are joining us for the first time this evening, and I have not had the opportunity of meeting you. My name is Tim Shepard. Uh, I'm the student pastor here. Um, and we have been in the book of Acts for the last three to four weeks. And we have been talking about who God is through the book of Acts. Um, we, so that week one, we kind of opens up with Holy Spirit is God. Everyone say Holy Spirit is God. Talking about this person, the third person of the Trinity, whom Jesus says he's going to send to his people after he ascends into heaven. And this person is going to be a helper, a comforter for the people of God that's going to empower the people of God to be the witnesses of the message of Jesus Christ to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and as our series is entitled, To the Ends of the Earth. In the second week, we talked about how the Holy Spirit Unifies. Let me hear you say, Holy Spirit unifies. I'm making sure that you're awake. Holy Spirit unifies. This idea that the, the church, the early church, had something very unique about them, where Jesus was bringing in people of every tribe, nation, and tongue to find some commonality with each other. And we saw some unique things mark the early church, a wholehearted devotion to the person of Jesus Christ, an awe and wonder to the person of Jesus Christ, a radical generosity in the way that they lived with one another, and a contagious joy with which there kind of seemed to be a gravity. More and more people kept coming to the church and converting to Christianity day by day. Two weeks ago, Catherine, she took us into Acts chapter 7 and the very beginning of Acts chapter 8. And she was talking about how God is sovereign. And what we have in this moment is the very first Christian martyr, Stephen, taken before the Sanhedrin. Victor, can we go ahead and close that back door right there? Junior high is loud and high-pitched. They need to grow up. My goodness, okay? She talked about how Stephen, he's brought before the Sanhedrin, the Jerusalem council, and, and he stands there and he pro proclaims the message of Jesus Christ. And in anger... He begins, they begin to, to listen to this message, get unsettled, and he goes, look, behold, the Son of Man is seated at the right hand of the Father. They get enraged. They drag him out of the city, and they stone him to death. They execute him. And then it says in Acts 8, starting in verse 1, can we put this on the screen, Brandon? And Saul approved of his execution. Everyone say Saul. 
We're gonna talk about this guy tonight. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were scattered all throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul, everyone say Saul. Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So what we have happening here is Stephen, the first Christian martyr, he's executed before everybody in Jerusalem. And on that day, a great persecution breaks out in the church. Now, this is really unique because everything was sunshine and rainbows and whiskers on kittens for the church up to this point. I mean, the Holy Spirit had come down. They're all starting to speak different languages. They're watching signs and wonders happen every day and everything is comfortable in Jerusalem. Then all of a sudden, one of them is killed for his faith in Jesus. And so then God takes this persecution, this suffering, and he uses it as a force to push the church outside of Jerusalem. And all of a sudden in Acts chapter eight, we have them in Judea and Samaria. You see how God even uses the brokenness of this world to accomplish his plans. God is sovereign. He will take all things and he will use it for two things, his glory and our good. And Catherine went over this a couple weeks ago. But today and tonight, I want to talk to you about how Jesus intervenes. Everyone say Jesus intervenes. Jesus intervenes. He steps in. He changes the status quo. And we primarily see this in Acts in the life of this man named Saul. Everyone say Saul. So we're going to read 19 verses here in Acts 9. We'll pray and we're going to be off to the races. Acts 9, verse 1, this is what it says. But Saul, everyone say Saul. Saul, still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, the way being believers, Christianity, if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And Jesus said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. I love that a street's name is straight. That's pretty cool. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. 
Listen here. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me to you that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord to which all God's people said. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. That was a whole text. But we need you. We need you to make sense of these two simple words. Jesus intervenes. We need you, Lord. We look around our world and we need you, Lord. We look around our nation and we need you, Lord. We look around our families and our friends and our city. We need you, Lord. We look inside at our own thoughts, our own internal life, and we need you, Lord. So Father, I pray you would give us the faith to see you in all of those places tonight. Show us yourself. Let us encounter you tonight. Give us faith a faith that believes that Jesus, you are the son of God, the one who was and is and is to come, the one who died and rose again and who's coming again in glory to judge the living and the dead and whose kingdom will have no end. Give us faith to believe that you are that God. Show us who you are tonight. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand and Hearts to believe. And if you're with me tonight, can you say amen? 16 years ago, I was a sixth grader in this room. I used to come in here every Wednesday night, me and my little buddy Harrison. We had voices that were as high pitched as freshman girls. Didn't change till we were sophomores. We come in, we worship here every night. Now my sixth grade year was a pretty impactful year for me. This was the year they brought a new guy to come be the youth pastor, or more specifically the junior high pastor at New Life Church. His name was Jared Newman. His daughters are in our youth group now, Myra and Ellie and his son, Sam, is in our youth group. They're not here tonight though. And I won't forget the impact that this man had on my life because he did some unique th things throughout my junior high and high school years. Primarily of which is he looked across the landscape of the young men that the Lord had brought him to lead and he noticed a problem. He would sit down and he would meet with young adults who were coming to serve in student ministries. And, and he grew up in the church and he noticed a common theme with a lot of older men at the church. And that was that there seemed to be this kind of predominant toxic disease slash sin that was plaguing men on into their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. And it was this idea of sexual immorality, being addicted to pornography, sleeping around on their wives or sleeping around just simply in general or men that would be addicted to the bottle or addicted to drugs or even more so, he'd look around the church and he'd go, men aren't showing up. 
Women are the only people that I'm seeing who are coming on a regular basis. And he was asking himself, where are the men? And he began to notice a repeated theme in the men that he would sit down and talk to. And he'd hear from them that they've been wrestling with porn, their marriages are falling apart. And, and he would ask this question, when, when did this start? And he got a repeated answer. They'd say, you know, like it was my sixth, seventh and eighth grade years that I'd be sitting at home over the summer my high school years, I'd be sitting at home over the summer. My parents were at work and I had nothing else to do. Idle time. And so you'd have these young men get addicted to pornography and then they'd take that addiction to whether it was pornography or drug abuse, alcohol abuse, whatever it is, and they'd carry it in to their marriages. And they'd watch their marriages fall apart. They'd watch themselves as fathers kind of fall by the wayside. And, and so Jared began to get really burdened. And he said, you know what? I don't want that to be the case on my watch as a youth pastor. And he, he found this quote written by the CEO and owner of Chick-fil-A that said he would rather build boys than mend men. And what he meant by that is he would rather get into the lives of an 11-year-old, 12-year-old, or 13-year-old and teach them what it meant to be godly men who held fast, who stood firm, who resisted sexual immorality, who resisted pornography, who, who made the decision at a young age that they wouldn't follow in the footsteps of many of their fathers or older brothers or uncles, but that they would get into God's word, they would learn a work ethic at 11, 12, 13 years old, and he would show them what it meant to be men of God at that age so that when they hit 30, 40, 50, instead of saying, I found addiction at these years, they said, I found Jesus at these years. And so what he did is he, he began to realize that summertime was the time that most of this stuff would take place in the lives of young boys. And so he started this summer program called Man Time. Ethan, are you wearing a man time shirt right now? Come on, stand up real quick. You look like a fat snack. Look at that. Come on now. You can take a seat. Started this program called Man Time. Now, if you don't know what that program is, I'll give you an idea. He said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to make it to where two, three days a week, I'm going to make these junior high and high school boys wake up at 7 a.m., get to the church here by 8 o'clock. And they're gonna get here by eight o'clock and then this is what they're gonna do. For the first hour, hour and a half, I'm gonna put them out in this parking lot and they're gonna flip tractor tires for an hour. They're gonna run bus tires up and down the parking lot for an hour. They're gonna sit and they're gonna run around this campus for an hour. I'm gonna pull a truck out put it in neutral and make them push it for an hour. Then after I make them do that for an hour, I'm gonna take them over to the World Prayer Center and I'm gonna get on their hands and knees and they're gonna pull weeds for an hour. I'm gonna have them go to every island on this campus, pull out the mulch, pull the weeds and the trash out of the mulch and put the mulch back in. I'm gonna have them go to every rock pile on this campus, pull the rocks out, wash the rocks, pull the trash and the weeds out and put the rocks back in. Then after that hour, I'm gonna bring them in here. I'm gonna open up the scriptures with them and I'm gonna teach them what it means to be a man of God. Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Wednesday, we'd have youth group. Sunday, we'd have youth group. There was not a lot of free time in our summers. My sixth grade year, my seventh grade year, my eighth grade year, my ninth grade year, my 11th, 10th grade year, I skipped the whole grade, 11th grade year, my 12th grade year, every summer until I graduated and after I graduated, 
I participated in this program. And it was like this, this Christian form of boot camp. <laughs> it was like, my goodness. And he, he'd come in and he'd ingrain this verse into us that Paul wrote, 1 Corinthians 9. And it says this, I beat... down, <laughs> right? I beat my body, I make it my slave. Thus, when I preach the gospel to others, I myself might not be disqualified from the prize. What he wanted to teach us was that there are gonna be times in your life when your body and the world and your flesh is going to tell you to quit. And he said, when those moments come, I want you to teach yourself in these moments that you don't submit to your body, you submit to God. You submit to God. So we'd be out there and we'd be pulling tires. We'd be flipping tires. We'd be, we'd be just burning in the sun. And he would teach us, don't quit. He's like, I don't care how fast you do it. Just don't quit. This is where it got unique for me. My 12th grade year, I was a senior. I just graduated. I was getting ready to take off to Texas. And he asked me to lead one of the teams that year. So as a senior, I was leading one of the teams. I was leading junior high boys. It was about the third weekend of the program. I had this young boy, his name was Keaton, on my team. He was a sixth, seventh grade boy, and he was pretty heavy set. You know that boy liked to eat some donuts and Mickey D's. I'm telling you. But he showed up and he had a good attitude, even though like it was tough for him. And we would do this day called circuit day at man time. And this is what this looked like. We'd go out to this parking lot over here. In the heat of the day, it'd be 90 degrees outside. And one of the rules in man time is that you're not allowed to overstate the obvious. You're not allowed to stand out here and say, it's hot, I'm tired, I'm thirsty. If you did, you'd have to do push-ups. So we'd be out here with these junior high boys and we'd have four circuits. First circuit is tire flip. Tractor tires lined up for 10 minutes straight, you're flipping. You're flipping, you're flipping. You'd make it down 30 yards. You switch with your team member. They'd flip it back and you'd go back and forth 10 minutes. After 10 minutes, you switch and we'd go to, to a rock circuit. And what he'd do is he'd make you go and grab these massive rocks outside. He'd make them hold us over our head. We'd have to do lunges. We'd have to do air squats. We'd drop them. We'd do burpees. We'd do push-ups. Repeat for 10 minutes. Then you'd go on an Indian run with your team. You'd all get in the line, start running around the parking lot. The person at the back sprints to the front. You keep doing it for 10 minutes. And the fourth circuit that we had was the wheelbarrow. And this is really simple. We all did this in elementary school. You partner up, one person gets down on their hands while the other partner picks up their legs and begins to push them, right? We do this like in third grade and it doesn't feel that bad because nobody has any weight on them in third grade. But when you get to a, a hefty boy like Keaton who likes Mickey D's, he was like, this is tough. And so we'd be out there, be 90 degrees on the black asphalt, the asphalt's burning. You get down, you put your hands and you start doing the wheelbarrow race. This was the last circuit that my team had to do. So everybody was exhausted. We get down and me and Keaton partner up. He's about this tall, he's hefty and he's dreading everything that he's about to do for the next 10 minutes. So I get behind him. And I say, all right, Keaton, you got this. He gets down on his hands. I pick up his legs. He makes it five feet. I mean, face right in the pavement, right in the pavement. He looks up at me. He is out of breath. He's crying. He's crying. He's got asphalt in his face. His hands are starting to get cut open. 
And he says, I can't, I can't, I can't. And I, as I dropped his legs, I came down, I walked over, I got down on my hands and knees. And I said, Keaton, look at me, look at me. He's crying, I mean, he's weeping, he looks at me. I said, don't you dare quit, don't you dare quit. I beat my body, I make it my slave. Get on your hands one more time. I want you to take it a couple more feet. So in his tears, wipes his face, says, okay. I walk back to the other side of him. I pick up his legs, five more feet, face in the pavement. Walk back home. He's weeping, weeping. I mean, there are probably like laws now that would prohibit me from doing what I was doing at this moment. But weeping, crying. His face is getting cherry red. Asphalt in his eyes. He's got rocks like poked into all of his face. His hands starting to bleed. Come over. He's crying to me. He said, I can't, I can't. What's the point? I'm not going to make it 20 yards. I got down on my hands and knees. I said, keep going. Keep going. I don't care if you can't finish this, this race, but hear me, if it's gonna take all 10 minutes, it'll take all 10 minutes, you're not gonna quit. You're not gonna quit. Wipes his face, says, okay. I got back behind him. I picked up his legs. He got on his hands, five more feet. Smashed his face yet again. He's wailing, he's crying. He's saying, I can't, there's no way that I can do this. I got down, I looked at him in the face. I said, Keaton, look in my eyes. Look in my eyes. You are not by yourself. I want you to get back up on your hands and I want you to push it. I I do not want you to quit. Keep going. I beat my body. I make it my slave. How you do anything is how you do everything. He says, okay. I get back behind him, pick up his legs. Five more feet. Boom. He smashes his face. Three more times this takes place. But hear me. He made it to the finish line. He gets to the finish line and he looks up and I see this look of liberation, strength, and freedom on his face. And it was in this moment, it took me six years to realize this is what this program's about. Let me tell you something. There is nothing more depressing in the Christian life than this idea or this belief that goes, this is just the way it is, it won't change. This was the case in Keaton's mind here. Every time he got up and he smashed his face into the concrete, he'd look at me with a look that said, this is just the way it is. It won't ever change. I can't do it. I saw it in a sixth grader's face 12 years ago, 11 years ago. And here's the crazy thing. I've led man time three years as the youth pastor here at New Life Church. I've been on staff here six years. We haven't done man time in the last two years. But I still see that same look in the face of most of you when I sit with you at coffee and take you to lunch and hear your stories and hear what's going on in your schools. And you know what the general sense that I I usually hear is? It's just the way it is. Nothing's gonna change. When we came out of 2020 last year, I heard this a lot. And truthfully, we still feel it a lot. Mask mandate, is it coming back? Is it going forward? What's taking place? The vaccine right now, like where, where are we gonna land as a country? Are we gonna have to go back to online? Are we gonna have to not go back to online? We're looking across the world and we're seeing Afghanistan just burn right now. And there's this general sense that we get as the people of God and and that I just hear all the time as a Northern Colorado Springs believer, it's just the way it is. And I want you to hear me. 
we get texts like Acts chapter nine to inform us and to tell us that that is not our bottom line. It's just the way it is. That's not our bottom line. We're given texts like Acts chapter nine for us to be able to see, wait a minute, we have a God who intervenes, who steps in on a man who's a Pharisee of Pharisees, grown up in Jewish law. He's ravaging the church. You know what that word means in the Greek? Is that he was treating shamefully, bringing to ruin, wreaking havoc upon the people of God. We have a man whose heart is dead set on stifling, suffocating, executing the message of Jesus Christ. And the question could be why, and it's pretty clear. It doesn't doesn't take long to realize it. If you look at Paul's life, if the message of Jesus Christ is true, then everything that Paul has worked his life to accomplish amounts to nothing. Wait a minute, you're telling me that people are saved by grace through faith in the person of Jesus Christ and it doesn't require a life that upholds the law that's born in, 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 a, in a house of Israel that's circumcised on the eighth day, that's kept the Sabbath their whole life, that's memorized. That you, wait, you're meaning to tell me that just anybody can know God? No, there's no way. And he's dead set on binding murdering, executing, imprisoning any believer who follows the way. And on his way to Damascus, Jesus intervenes. Suddenly, knocked off his horse, bright light shines, and he hears these words, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting? Blind takes him into Damascus and he's blind for three days. Three days he doesn't see, three days he doesn't eat, three days he doesn't drink. And yet, you have Ananias come, lay his hands on him, regain his sight. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's baptized. And you know what the very next verse says? Is he goes out and he begins to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ in the synagogues of Damascus. What is it about our faith that doesn't despair? Even when the world is going, this is just the way it is. What is it about our faith, brothers and sisters, that when we, we look at the global world and we go, global pandemic, hurricanes, Afghanistan on fire, Oh, this is just the way it is that the people of God would actually get on their hands and knees and begin to pray. Why? Because when we read our scripture, we see a God who intervenes, who steps in and who can change the status quo. You wanna know like the equivalent to what took place in this passage? It would be like this. It would be like Bin Laden on his way to Afghanistan, knocked off his horse, blinded. Jesus giving him the revelation of the gospel, his eyes being open and bin Laden then spending his life preaching the message of Jesus Christ to Muslims. That's what's taking place in this moment right now. 
And so we can sit and look at the world and go, my goodness, it seems like everything's going to hell in a handbasket. And yet we read a passage like Act, uh, Acts chapter nine, the story of Saul being converted to Paul, something that has, has, has no business. He has no business knowing Jesus. And Jesus goes, no, 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 no. I'm gonna take the most broken and show you how I'm gonna use it to glorify my name. We look around our country right now. So divided. I mean, so divided. It just, I'm, everybody's walking on eggshells with one another. And I'm like, I don't know, I don't know how to talk about the, the black and white scenario. I don't know how to talk about COVID-19. I don't know how to talk about Democrats or Republicans. I don't know, I don't know how to talk about, you know, like the, the, the unborn and, and abortion. I don't, I don't know how to talk about this. So let's just kind of like hate one another because this is just the way that it is. And then I read Acts chapter nine and I I have a God who intervenes. I look at my family and I look at my friends right now, friends who have fallen by the wayside and they don't follow Jesus anymore. I have a brother-in-law who's now an ex-brother-in-law. He's got three kids with my sister-in-law and eight years into marriage, he decided to have an affair on my sister-in-law. Got pregnant with another woman and just decided he was done and he wasn't gonna do this thing anymore. Walked away, and he still walked away. He didn't just walk away from his family, he walked away from the Lord. And you know, everything in my heart just wants to be bitter, it wants to hate him. I wanna, I wanna be, just see him as my enemy. And then I read a passage like Acts chapter nine, and I go, my God has the ability to change his life and turn it upside down for his glory. <laughs> I look at my own life my internal life right now. And I, I can have dark thoughts. I can have depressing thoughts. I can be lonely. I can be anxious. And it can be a lot of cause to, to go, will this ever change? Or this is just the way that it is. And then I read a passage like Acts chapter nine. And I go, my God intervenes. I look back to the Old Testament, and this is the story of our God that we find over and over and over again, don't we? Joseph, sold into slavery by his brothers. Catherine talked about this two weeks ago. He's in Egypt, in slavery. Then he gets falsely accused for, for trying to violate Potiphar's wife. And so he gets sent to prison and his life just goes from bad to worse to awful. And it doesn't take long for us to keep reading and realize that God takes him from the bottom of the pit to be in charge, second in charge in Egypt. My God has the ability to turn things around. Israel enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, crying out, will this ever change? This is just the way it is. Exodus chapter two, I'm given a picture of a God who hears and does what? He intervenes. Brothers and sisters, I need you to hear me tonight. We do not have a God who's sitting on the sideline, looking at your life and waiting for you to figure it out. He's not waiting for this world to figure it out. He's not waiting for our country to figure it out. We have a God who got off his throne in heaven and the word made flesh. Emmanuel, God with us, he intervened, why? Because Jesus is all about 
redemption. Can I get the worship team to go ahead and come back up? I'm gonna end pretty early tonight because I wanna take some time for us to just sit in this for a second. Because here's what I think is the case. I think that the temptation right now in most of our lives, in most of our homes, is just to say, this is what it is. You're like Keaton. And every couple days, every couple weeks, every couple months, your face is falling into the concrete. And you're looking around and you're going, nothing is changing. Nothing's changing. What's the point? What's the point of prayer? What's the point of church? What's the point of God, if we're being honest? Because really, you're looking at your life and it's like, God hasn't changed anything. And I wanna encourage you to as best you can, shut your eyes of flesh and open your eyes in the spirit and try to be attentive to what God's doing. I want you to bow your heads. I just want you to hear these words over and over and over again. Jesus intervenes. He intervenes. Jesus intervenes. Afghanistan is on fire. Taliban seems to be having their way, but it's just kind of some newsreel that's off in a distant land, but it's kind of discouraging. It's sad and it's heartbreaking. What are we to do? Well, if Acts chapter nine is a real thing, then the invitation is for us to get on our hands and knees and pray for the Taliban. I know that sounds weird. I'm not praying for them to be prosperous. I'm praying for them to come to know Jesus. I'm not praying that their scheme, their agenda, their plan would come to fruition. I'm praying that God's kingdom would come and his will would be done in their lives as it is in heaven. I'm looking at the world right now. Delta variant. Is everything gonna shut down again? Quarantine's gonna become like a reality again. Am I terrified to get this virus? Have I lost a loved one to this virus? What, what is to be the case? God, what are we to do? You hear me, if Acts chapter nine is real, we get on our hands and knees and we pray. We pray that in the same way God suddenly encountered Paul, that he would suddenly turn this thing on its head and we would watch Jesus be glorified as, as people, instead of burning bridges, begin to be unified. Instead of speaking curses, they speak life. 
I want you to take a look at your family and your friends right now as your head's bowed. You might hate your parents. Dear goodness, you might hate your parents. And it might be completely just. You might have an abusive father, an abusive mother. You might have parents who neglect the tar out of you and they don't know or they do know. You might have parents who are completely ignorant to what is going on in your life. You might have parents who are completely out to lunch in your life. And the invitation of the world is to just hate them because of it. But if Acts chapter nine is true, then what that means is that God is in the business of redeeming the most repulsive people that you have in your life. And if you genuinely wanna know is the cry of your height, Lord, the cry of your heart, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done, then you'll know you would be overjoyed to see God redeem them. Jesus intervenes. He can take what's broken and he can make it whole. He can take what's wounded and heal it. Look at your internal life right now. Your internal life right now, your thoughts. being honest with yourself, you know that you just have like thoughts of anger and hatred and disgust towards yourself. You're wrestling with some form of depression for quite some time and you haven't talked to anybody about it or you've tried to cope with it on your own or you're wrestling with some form of anxiety. And hear me, those aren't illegitimate things. I understand. I understand they can be a very real reality. And the gospel does not have us ignore them. The gospel isn't to say, hey, you're, you don't have to feel anxious even though you feel anxious. The gospel is that, hey, in the midst of this, I have a God who intervenes and I have a God who is greater and I have a God who is stronger and I have a God who is over all of this. And though my flesh might give way and my mind might be hurting and the inside might be in pain, my God stands on the throne. He stands on the and so in the face of my anxiety, in the face of my loneliness, in the face of my depression, in the face of my addiction, I'm gonna say in faith, God, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is what I wanna do. Leaders, if you're in the room, I want you to go ahead and come forward. If that's all right, stand up and come forward. Students, I want you to keep your heads down. In the book of James, the author writes that the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and it's effective. And so this is what I think. As I was praying for tonight, I, I just became convicted. I'm like, you know what? I don't feel like I've given enough opportunity in our youth group for you to come forward and ask for prayer. And so this is what I want you to do. I, I just want you to be honest. I'm gonna have the worship team go back into another song here. Um, but I want you to identify maybe an area or the areas, the main area 
that you've ceased to believe that Jesus will intervene. Your parents are getting a divorce. You believe it's just the way that it is. Believe again that Jesus can intervene. You're wrestling with loneliness or anxiety, whatever it's going to be, and it's been this way for however long, and it's just the way that it is, and you've accepted that thought, and you need to believe again that Jesus can intervene, that Jesus can change what is. You're looking at the world right now, and you're burdened for the world. Like you're burdened for the world. You're burdened for Afghanistan. You're burdened for Canada. You're burdened for... You're burdened for Louisiana, like, and you just need to, to have the faith to believe, Jesus, you can intervene. And this is what I want you to do. As we engage back into this worship song, I want you to come forward and ask for prayer and have somebody stand with you and pray with you and believe with you that Jesus can change what is. I just totally believe like the enemy is getting his way when the people of God have ceased to believe that God can change what is. And I don't want that to be the case for your generation. I'd love to see like that heart of Keaton rise up in all of you, that though you might face plant 17 times in the concrete, you're gonna get back up and you won't quit. Why? Because you do not submit to the ways of this world you submit to the one who's on the throne. So that being said, can you stand with me? So this is the way this is gonna work. I'm gonna have the worship team go back in. I want you to identify that thing that you're wanting Jesus to intervene with. You're wanting to see God do the impossible with. Identify it. And then I want you to pray with someone about it. And if you don't feel comfortable praying with any of these leaders, that's okay. Pray with a friend. But we're here for you. We're here for each other. So that being said, can you open your hands with me? Lord, we love you. God, we need you. What can we do but look at our world, look at our nation, look at our city, Look at our families, look at our friends, look at our homes, look at our interior life. And the only thing we can say is we need you. We need you. God, I thank you that you are a God who pursues us despite where our hearts are. Saul, in his anger, in his hatred of you and your people, you came running after him. And I believe you're doing that with every single person in this room tonight. The shepherd who leaves the 99 to go after the one. So Father, I pray you would give us faith, faith to press on and to stir up belief again that you are in fact the God who intervenes. So Lord, I pray that you would come. Would you heal us? Would you speak to us? Would your kingdom come, will be done. Have your way.
Thanks again for listening to this message from New Life Student Ministries. If you want to keep up with what's happening with us, follow us on Instagram and Facebook at NL Student Ministries.